Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Recently, international cyber expert Maritza Schalke joined Fergus Hansen for a discussion on technology and how democracies can work together amidst rising authoritarianism to better regulate technologies. They also discussed the worrying spread of military-grade surveillance tools now available in the free market. I'm Fergus Hansen, the director of the International Cyber Policy Centre here at ASPE, and it's my absolute uh, pleasure to be hosting Maritza Schatke um, t- today. Maritza has a CV that makes you feel like you've failed at life. Um, among some of her roles, she's president of the Cyber Peace Institute and international policy director at Stanford University's Cyber Policy Centre. She's also an international policy fellow at Stanford's Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. She's served for a decade as a member of the European Parliament for the Dutch Liberal Democratic Party, where she focused on trade, foreign affairs and technology policy. Marietje is affiliated with a number of non-profits, including the European Council on Foreign Relations and the Observer Research Foundation uh, in India and she writes the monthly comp column in the Financial Times. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll hand over to you, Maritza, and, and thank you again so much for joining us. Well, thank you for those very kind words and good afternoon. Uh, it's morning here in Amsterdam. I'm, I'm really happy to join you. It's one of the advantages of technologies that we can be in the same room without having to fly literally halfway across the world. But maybe that's also a starting point of where, you know, I take my motivation to to work on questions around tech, uh, questions around governing technology and uh, which values should inform that, which is that it's so tempting and so easy to look at how technologies that we use every day have made our lives easier and have made it faster and more efficient to move around, to access information, to do our work during a pandemic. But that this comfort and uh, entertainment and ease of use has also uh, perhaps blinded us, certainly as as individuals, but unfortunately, I believe also as democratic governments, to the necessary work that needs to be done to avoid that digital disruption disrupts the very foundations of our free and open societies. Uh, And I don't think I have to remind Australians uh, of how much pressure there can be on that free and open society. I mean, you find yourself in a very different part of the world where a big and non-democratic neighbor uh, has a lot of power and where of questions of power globally, basically wherever we look, technology is an increasingly important aspect. And so uh, in this basically escalating, challenging Uh, battle, competition, um, question of uh, how power can be used to make sure that technology uh, goes goes in a democratic direction and and not uh, disrupts democracy is sort of the the field that I find myself in. And I think uh, the the moment during which we meet, you know, basically carves out the urgency of this of this question. We have just had a major revelation around uh, um, escalation of the use of spyware uh, to to target journalists, to target human rights defenders, and even uh, focusing in on heads of state. We have uh, escalations in ransomware attacks. 
unfortunately, an ongoing discussion around trustworthiness of information around COVID-19, around the U.S. elections still ongoing, um, major questions about supply chain resilience, about who gets to set the standards of technology and by proxy our, our freedoms and our ability to oversee, our ability to know. Um, so there's there's a real spectrum, almost like a systems question at hand here. And um, well, that is that is what I do. And I think as part of the solution, what is important to uh, achieve is, is to bridge the gap between those who make the technology, who understand it from a technological angle, and those who uh, govern societies, who are democratic leaders, because I think the gap between democratic leaders and tech leaders tends to be uh, too large. And it's important that both understand each other better. So it's very popular to say, oh, politicians don't understand technology and uh, it's all hopeless. And sure, there's a lot of learning to do, but uh, I, I challenge you to go to uh, uh, rooms full of engineers and talk to them about constitutions and, and uh, the rule of law and human rights. There's a lot of learning on that end to do as well. So at Stanford, I uh, have found a place where I think uh, there's a lot of uh, room for these fruitful discussions, a lot of very driven students as well who feel the responsibility of their role as, as aspiring tech leaders, but also people who want to make sure that the technology uh, doesn't, doesn't undermine the very things that they, uh, that they believe in. I'll leave it there as an introduction. I'm really happy to go into more interactive part of this uh, session. And thanks for having me. Well, well, thank you for those opening remarks. I was going to start with some questions around politics that straddle your really special experience, both being in the political world and in the tech policy world. So just a few questions around this. Um, one of the, the great challenges that we seem to face at the moment is the escalating tension between uh, governments and the tech industry. And you, you referenced some of this in your remarks. Uh, and this is in fact one of the reasons why we're looking to host the Sydney Dialogue later this year to try and bring um, you know, government leaders and the tech industry leaders together to, to work through some of these issues. But my question is, do you agree, firstly, that this escalating tension is a problem? And how do you see this playing out? Will, will things become increasingly um, fractious as governments increase regulation on the tech industry? Um, or is there an off-ramp where there could be uh, more collaborative solutions? And what could a more collaborative approach potentially look like? Well, you're right. I do think we're we're witnessing a sort of reckoning of um, decades of a very hands-off, laissez-faire, libertarian-dominated uh, approach to looking at the technology sector. And I think this is most of all inspired uh, by the U.S. Silicon Valley culture and the responses or, or lack of responses from political leaders. For too long, there's been a almost blind faith that the the Technologies that were developed, whether they be social media or uh, other kinds of, of services, would almost automatically lead to more liberties. Uh, remember the, the era of the Arab uprisings where the sort of mantra was, if you simply give young people mobile phone and Internet access, you know, they will they will use that to make democracy go viral. And that was one part of the story at best, I think quite a naive understanding of how hard it is to actually achieve a democratic transition 
to build a rule of law in places where it has been systematically stamped out, uh, where people have been uh, repressed, censored and, and surveilled. But um, this hope and also the excitement about the strength of, of um, companies, the um, uh, anticipated benefits, innovations have really allowed a lot of room for companies to do as they please, to self-regulate and to, uh, in the process, grow from entrepreneurial startups to monopolistic giants. And I think globally, and this is really fascinating, that across different societies from China to the United States, Europe, Australia, you actually see governments taking steps to improve and, and um, review competition law as it applies to the digital sector, to look at who should decide when free speech bleeds into concerns about public health or public safety, whether it is okay <clears throat> for companies to have intelligence-grade technologies and sell it to whoever wishes to purchase it. What are we going to do about securing our software when we see that either criminal attacks or state-led attacks are exploiting that very sector that used to be the pride and joy of Silicon Valley and the United States. So really the question is, uh, what is the, the right uh, level of um, rules of the road, checks and balances, independent oversight? And I think uh, there there is simply a rebalancing going on between hardly any rules of the road to identifying you know, what is needed, not only within democratic societies, but also in this geopolitical battle between a democratic vision of governance and a more authoritarian one, of which tech is, you know, an increasingly significant layer. So, I mean, just to sort of contrast the the, the democratic changes and checks and balances that you're talking about with the, the authoritarian approach, I mean, some of the, the trends that we've seen in China recently around, you know, uh, um, constraints being put around some of their big tech companies, the you know the ant listing, for example, uh, and Jack Ma having to go underground. Do you see that as a sort of a different type of dynamic, or is it the same sort of phenomenon but manifesting itself in a different way in the, the different governance models? Well, I think it's fair to say that state authorities, even if they represent completely different ideological systems feel challenged by excessive power without uh, the, the proper kind of oversight. Now, you know, putting restrictions on a company like Amazon or Google or Facebook in the interest of preserving democracy, making sure that conspiracy theories do not jeopardize public health or uh, harm children or attack the trust in the democratic process, it's clearly a different kind of intervention than those coming from typical top-down state-led, uh, in this case, communist uh, leadership. I mean, we cannot equate the context, we cannot equate uh, the, the effects, but we can see that there's concern about a private sector, some giants within that private sector, uh, and, and the power that they have amassed and what it does to the role of states as such. And, you know, I'm much more focused on the role of democratic states because I think democracy is, is the foundation of our of our liberties, even if it's not perfect. But it, democracies offer the ability to constantly improve, to critically assess ourselves, to have those voices 
you know, talking, talking between themselves to see what the best path forward is, where I think that authoritarian regimes do not allow for that debate, do not allow for that improvement. In fact, the state is, is normally constantly uh, preoccupied with retaining its own power. So I, I don't want to equate it on an ideological level, but I, I do see it as a global trend. Uh, and in that sense, it's also a real question where companies are going to come out, <clears throat> whether they are going to take a values position that is more explicit than it has been. Are companies going to say, we are going to align ourselves with universal human rights? We are going to advance the rule of law. We are going to be transparent uh, about our own governance, for example. We're going to avoid too much top-down governance within our companies. These are all questions that I, I believe will be much more in the forefront than they have been, where companies and their leaders have said all kinds of beautiful things uh, think about the social media giants about, you know, connecting the world and advancing freedom of expression and so on and so forth. But chances that they have to operate in countries where those freedoms don't exist have not been uh, foregone in the interest of preserving human rights. In fact, the business interests normally drive those decisions. And so the question is whether that kind of um, value agnostic approach is actually sustainable for companies. Well, I'd like to just... Um talk about another big trend and this one's probably a little bit more geopolitical it's the the tech bifurcation that we're starting to see where uh, many emerging and critical technologies such as artificial intelligence quantum computing but also or quantum technologies um, but also supply chains are fast becoming geopolitical issues uh, and we've also seen states racing to secure uh, their equities in this contest and picking winners uh, with some large investments um, state-led investments I was wondering how you see tech bifurcation playing out and how the, the EU's attempt to achieve uh, strategic autonomy um, plays into this debate. Well, it's a great question and actually a fairly uh, hotly debated one. Um, the idea of having strategic autonomy, I think, is a legitimate one. Uh, but in the EU, some people are really making the case for uh, more European sovereignty. Uh, which I do think puts it in a sort of more radical uh, basket where, you know, the, the connotation of the word sovereignty is to really bring a tech sector under under control of the state to be uh, autonomous in, in supply chains and production. And of course, that is all in the case of the EU, uh, not very realistic. Uh, and it's also at odds with the ideals of having a system where uh, through trade, uh, based on rules, there is uh, mutual dependence. You know that that it's better to to trade with each other than to turn our backs uh, towards each other, and and possibly worse to compete in the most uh, cutthroat ways. So, strategic autonomy, even the whole idea of sovereignty as a sort of political rallying cry, I can fully understand. Uh, when I look at the the facts on the ground in the EU, I think there's so much that needs to be done in order to even get close that you know it's it's a space to watch in deeds more than in words one of the, the dynamics here seems to be as well as uh, nation states coming in here with these these large investments whether it's to achieve you know strategic autonomy or because they want to they see it as so critical to their national interest that they have to be have um, you know be the winners or be the, the leaders in particular technologies is, are we going to see a reversal, do you think, of the the, the dynamic we saw with, with the, the last wave of techno, technology innovation where essentially the market 
drove the innovation, the investment and um, the product release to one where we have the state being the principal investor and, you know, driving a lot of this innovation and presumably also dictating to an extent at least the terms of its rollout? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of anchor points that we can identify. One, the market, which we've touched upon indeed, has been a very strong driver in the tech sector, allowing the market to sort it out, having very little intervention. And then uh, the sort of uh, trend of today is to look at technological developments more through a national security lens. And where sometimes that is a justified lens, we should not be naive. And I think sticking to Europe for a moment, there has been quite a bit of naivete about you know, what was at stake, what is at stake when it comes to certain technologies, who has a keen interest in, in having them and what dependencies uh, either in supply chains or in specific uh, components, chips, uh, natural resources can lead to. But there's also this big anchor that I don't think we talk about enough, which is the public interest. You know, how how can public values be safeguarded if there's on the one hand a heavy market-driven development uh, of technology, a national security-driven development of technology, where does the public factor in it? And I uh, would like to see more focus on how public interests, uh, public values can be safeguarded in the digital world because the digital world is expanding. It's becoming a layer of everything in our societies, everything touching people's lives. And I would honestly hate to see that layer be uh, inspired in, in how it's formed by either uh, a heavy reliance on market forces or a heavy reliance on national security forces. If, if we are going to have um, this tech bifurcation or a competition or the next wave of technology developed on the basis of um, you know democratic values being instilled into the technologies. It seems to me it's not just a matter of baking in those values into the, the technology products from the outset, but it's also a, a matter of getting governments to not only preach the values, but to, to live by them. And I mean that in the sense of when we're adopting new technologies, whether it's you know convenient tools to conduct policing or to manage our borders or to um, you know track our citizens in a pandemic, how do we do that in a way that um, it keeps true to those values? And it seems like that is an area where, at least in um, you know, in, in a couple of democracies that I can think of immediately, there's there's question marks around whether those the, the baking into those values at the practice level is really happening. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And what is really worrying is how how often we see crises like COVID pandemic, but also 9-11, for example, or the war on terror, or now even this systems competition between the US and China, leading to um, excesses that go against the very principles that we ought to defend against any erosions or direct attacks or, or things like that. And it is also a testimony to how little has been done to put democratic values first in looking at how governance should be uh, should be extended, how it should be designed, how it should be innovated to deal with this new digital technological reality. Uh, and I think on the one hand, it is important that companies think about 
the effects that their technologies have from the very design or even before that to anticipate not only what is is hoped for or or intended in a in a good sense but also what could be the unintended consequences of what abuse could look like and i think there's been an arrogance frankly on the part of democratic societies that their tech sector would be in their advantage and uh when the tables turn that's when the lack of rules or safeguards really actually become clear let me give you an example i've worked for for more than a decade now to rein in this private intelligence spyware surveillance hacking market of which the Pegasus project displayed once again last week, the, the complete abuses of, of uh, the technology, the uh, mission creep, the proliferation and the risk that that leads to, where we see human rights defenders, journalists, but even heads of state becoming the target of these technologies that are really intelligence grade uh, systems that are now available on the free market. So imagine the mafia having access to this, terrorist groups having access to this, authoritarian states already having access to this. It is, um, it is a, a uh, Pandora's box, this whole industry. It is remarkable to me how a number of these spyware companies are based in democratic societies. So you have governments going out there, making statements about the need to respect the freedom of the press, the freedom of assembly, to give people a fair trial, to uh, give a safe space for civil society, and so on and so forth. While the governments to which these statements are directed know that they can sign contracts with companies based in the same democratic societies that are going to provide them the tools and services of choice to repress. And so you really have to ask yourself how, how um, to make sure that there are not uh, sectors somehow abused or working exactly as intended, but that undermine the very fabric and the very uh, spirit and the very promise of democratic societies. And so it really worries me to see that from a notion of arrogance that maybe will be in the lead forever, uh, there's been a hesitancy to to rein in uh, certain certain sectors with the aim of preserving core principles. And that one day soon, and maybe this is already happening, but we just don't have a good view of it. Our journalists could be spied on with the uh, help of, let's imagine, you know, Chinese-made systems. What would we do? You know, what sort of ground do we stand on if we have not put anything in the way of our own industries from exporting and producing these systems? And then suddenly we need to play catch up and it will look like we're, we're unfairly targeting uh, technology coming from one country without being willing to address our own. So uh, we have to also be careful not to only think about the risks of the use of technology as being a risk when they're in the hands of authoritarian regimes and not being a risk when they're in the hands of uh, democratic governments. It's, it's not that clear cut. And uh, it puts an extra responsibility and, and uh, urgent task on the shoulders of democratic leaders to make sure that uh, they're taking their responsibility, essentially. Well, maybe I can um, f follow up with that with, with two questions. I mean, the first one, um, maybe I can start with um, a government that um, we are all, lots of countries, Australia, Europe, the United States is engaging quite actively now as a strategic partner is in India. Uh, we've got the Quad uh, relationship here in Australia. 
Uh, we've also launched the Australia-India Critical Technology Partner. But we've also seen India in the news recently for a bunch of more controversial reasons. Um, its decision around uh, various internet shutdowns, um, demands for social media companies to censor content or, or trace users, um, which is currently being challenged by the tech companies. Um, so at the same time, the world's largest democracy uh, and a key strategic partner for us, um, how do we, how should we be seeing India and how should we be engaging India, especially when it comes to sort of, you know, issues like the one you, you've raised? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big believer in more um, effective and global collaboration between democratic countries. Uh, but it also means that there has to be uh, a clear sense of what a democratic rule of law-based society is. And so in those kinds of configurations like the Quad, and you, you probably have a better view of that than I do, would also be a good opportunity to talk about uh, repressive tendencies, authoritarian tendencies, um, you know, that we unfortunately see in India. And it may well be that the government of India understands very well how strategic its position is and is also assuming that they can, you know, get away with, with these kinds of uh, interventions that go against uh, the, the promise of what a democratic rule of law based society is. And so I'm hoping that because there is now uh, an appetite and I think an urgency to collaborate more effectively between democratic societies, particularly when it comes to governing technology, to also really have a frank discussion with uh, those leaders in India to see how, how they uh, view this and then to assess whether indeed there is enough uh, common ground when it comes to the foundations and the values upon which to build such a collaboration and to build such a governance model. So pivoting to the, the point you were making about um, Pegasus and, and the NSO group, um, and your your point around you know needing to do something about this. Um, you you talked about you know you've talked about increasing transparency by governments and industry on the, the use of uh, of spyware and and these these technologies provided by the private sector as well as greater regulation. Um, how how could we achieve that and and can we achieve that as as democracies? Well, I'm, I'm always looking for opportunities to get things done that I think needs change. So I'll never say it's not possible. But from experience, I know that this particular question is very difficult for a number of reasons. Indeed, a lot of the technologies that are now proliferating across the world have initially been procured by law enforcement and police in democratic societies under the banner of countering terrorism, which is, of course, a very important um, goal, and fighting organized crime, also extremely important. But we, we lack transparency. Um, in the Netherlands, for example, freedom of information requests by one of our main newspapers have remained unanswered about which tools the Dutch government is using, even though it is known that they're using such tools. And the disclaimer is that they will not purchase from uh, companies that also sell to so-called dubious regimes. Well, good luck with figuring out what that means. Uh, and so because there is a lack of transparency, there cannot be a healthy public debate about what is and is not appropriate in terms of the use of these systems, whether they should be used at all 
whether they are, for example, used within the confines of the rule of law, and whether the harms are not disproportionate. So even if these systems are procured for legitimate use uh, under under uh, rights protecting conditions and so on and so forth, if it ends up proliferating all over the world, if it ends up being used against the same states that have procured it in the first place, uh, if human rights are violated disproportionately, et cetera, et cetera, then you have to ask yourself, is this mechanism working? And you, you then have a whole host of tools you could put in place to put more um, regulations, licensing, oversight uh, over, this, uh, over this sector. So, for example, uh, more due diligence, more know your customer requirements, uh, licensing requirements, um, sanctions in case of, of um, operating outside of those legal parameters, export controls. Um, blacklisting for the use by governments if companies have not, uh, you know, stepped in line with those requirements, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is there's very little in the way of these companies right now, a little bit in the EU where there's just been an update of the dual use export controls regulation that includes these technologies and foresees in in human rights uh, as a criterion to, to assess against. But from the Pegasus project, we've seen that Viktor Orban has used uh, NSO Group's uh, Pegasus um, systems and has presumably imported them. And the regulation doesn't stop that. Regulation doesn't talk about use within societies. So I believe that the spyware sector, the surveillance and hacking systems that are uh, in view here are a very good example, even a litmus test for how we deal with some of these ever more uh, quick, cheap, uh, fast, invasive systems within our democratic societies and what kind of responsibility democratic governments are going to take. And proportionality is a really big question here. Is the use of these systems and the harms that these systems cause proportionate to the alleged benefits of which we know so little because there's so little transparency? Well, Marietje, we covered a huge amount of ground um, there, but thank you so much for making yourself available to do this today. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you for all the wonderful questions, and I can't wait to be able to visit Australia again in person. There are so many great things happening, and uh, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Wonderful. Thank you. You've been listening to an extract from a recent webinar. You'll find the full conversation in the links below. Our guest this week, Marietje Schake, is the International Policy Director at Stanford University's Cyber Policy Centre. She is also International Policy Fellow at Stanford's Institute for Human-Centred Artificial Intelligence and President of the Cyber Peace Institute. Thank you for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.